3: I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere. And I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to May Money. Welcome to Kramerica. I've been with my friends. I'm just trying to save a little money here. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate explain days like today. So call me at one 800 743 cbc Tweet me at Jim Kramer. Stay the course. Until the job is done. There. That's really all that Fed Chief Jay Powell committed to today. And while Wall Street hated it with the Dow plunging 505 points, S&P plummeting 2.50%, and NASDAQ knows it's already 3.36%. It's what needs to happen to stamp out inflation that robs you of your purchasing power. Powell knows he's done a lot to cool down the economy, but he also knows and said it so many times, that he's far from done. It's his game plan, he's sticking with it. I really do not envy, pal. Every sentence parsed, every word analyzed. Plus his job right now is to bring the pain. The house of pain. Not create the game. House of pleasure. So his job isn't fun. But all you really know at this moment is that, like a ball game, the tightening's not over until the fat lady sings. The fat lady being inflation. By that metric, the ball game's nowhere near over and it's not really much use guessing which inning we're in, although people constantly do that. I can tell you this, we're definitely not at the seventh inning stretch. Now, traders are jumpy by nature. They look at Powell's 2 p.m. statement, and he issues a statement before he has a press conference. And it, you know what? It had some new language in it, saying that the Fed's conscious it's conscious that its actions take time to play out. That was regarded as being the signal to buy. They went crazy, buying everything, thinking that therefore, because he put that phrase in, he's going dovish. To belabor the ballgame analogy, the traders took a real long lead off of first, betting they had a chance of reaching home plate on a single because Powell said he's mindful that parts of the economy are slowing, like housing. But by the time Powell's press conference started, he picked off the traders like he was taking Halloween candy from a baby. The traders remain convinced he'll signal someday that he's done tightening. Let will have a press conference and say, you know what? I'm done tightening. You can go buy stocks. Unfortunately, that's not how it works. It's never worked that way. I've been telling you that for 17 years. It's not how it works. And we found out during that unfortunate press conference, or at least unfortunate for the short-term bulls. Here's how the moment really works. The Fed's job right now is to crush inflation. For that to happen, we need wages to stabilize, not go higher. And that means higher unemployment. We don't have that yet. We're not even close to that yet. But Powell's told us time and again that it has to happen before he'll stop raising rates. He's been consistent because he doesn't want another flare up after he does declare victory, which eventually he will. The big question is, why did traders believe Powell was going to say the following? You know what? We have wage hikes all over the place. We have no real price stability in the supermarket. We have far more jobs than we can fill. Only housing and commodities have actually reversed in price. So I guess we're done. Go buy stocks. Bye bye bye! Well, well, you know that's insane, people. Powell's simply not worried about tightening too much. Not with unemployment at 3.5 percent, you know, almost all time low. He's only worried about tightening too little. That's it. It's very binary. So what do we do with that knowledge? Okay, listen. This year we've seen rate hikes go up by 375 basis points. That's monumental. And we have to consider that the Fed's staying the course means that you might have to adjust your portfolio and that you can still do it after we've had a nice run. Because many stocks that do well in advance do poorly in a slowdown, while selling the stocks that need a strong economy in order to thrive makes sense. Still, we're still doing it for the investing club. Now, let me tell you, let's let's put all that aside, because I I really want to start distinguishing, uh, because I was talking about this yesterday with with, uh, Sharon Deperson and Tyler Matheson, on a really great program. If you're an index fund guy, right, you know what? The market's overbought, but it comes down. You put some money to work. I will. You don't have to care about any of this. If you keep all your money in index funds, all you should worry about is that Powell might throw in the towel and stop fighting inflation before he's won. Why? Because it would mean that even if your portfolio went up, it might be worth a lot less when you go to withdraw your money in 10 or 20 or 30 years. You don't need to concern yourself with these short-term gyrations in the market. Although I would say if you follow the investing club, when we talk about a market being oversold, that's when you commit money for your index fund. That's what I do. But if you're, I can't own individual stocks. I can only own stocks for my trust for the club. But if you're holding your own portfolio, if you're building it, okay, What you heard today is a big deal. All year, the market's been doing this, going through this incredible leadership change. Tech of all stripes is now the enemy. In the old days, it seemed like they'd do well no matter what. That turned out to be wrong. We've been trimming these stocks forever. If you're hanging on to anything tech, you have to recognize you're going to take a dropping with a profitable company and get slacked by a loser. If you're invested in a company that came public in the last two years, you're going to get a real beatdown. Sell, 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 sell. If you own a SPAC, you're going to get crushed. That's because j down there giving you the business. He's not specifically targeting these companies. He's not saying, you know, it's time to sell the semis. Isn't he, he, that's not his game. He's targeting the system that allowed them to come public in the first place and command ridiculous valuations. He doesn't necessarily want tech stocks down, but Wall Street's created too many of them, and now they're running out of customers because of the slowdown. They are the epicenter of this decline. Most of these newly minted tech stocks require endless economic growth. Because without new customers, their business models break down. Hardly a day goes by without one of these companies reporting a seemingly good quarter, 40% growth, lots of new contracts. And then they tell you the process of getting new customers has elongated. Elongated is code for our business is slowing, and we have way too many employees. Now, if you own any one of these newer tech companies, believe me, that's what's happening. That's why I keep telling you they're unsafe at any speed. Does my trust own some Alphabet? Absolutely. That's an inexpensive stock. But these kinds of stocks, these are new, fresh, and they are going to fail. This same dynamic is why I come out here every night and say, don't buy, don't buy, or sell, sell, sell to every company in any industry that loses money. The odds that these companies simply won't be able to outlast j Powell at the blackjack table, they're going to go bust. That's right, bust. In fact, it's worse. The Fed needs them to go bust in order to push up the unemployment rate. It's especially bad when you're dealing with companies that allow you to do anything with data. We have so many enterprise software plays that help massage data, analyze data, prune data, organize data, use data to get new customers, store data, sift through data, make data come alive in all sorts of different vehicles. Data has become fool's gold. Data is iron pyrite. When you hear the word data and you see a loss, I don't care what kind of growth the company has. I don't care what kind of software it owns. It is bad. But you know what? You know what's not bad? How about Johnson & Johnson, which is breaking up into two separate companies, consumer packaged group play, that won't get hurt by the Fed's mandated recession, band-aids, you're not going to use them, and a fast-growing pharma-slash-med tech play that's going to save your life. Same goes for Eli Lilly, big pharma company, had him on last night. Turic diabetes franchise, added advantage of allowing you to lose 25 pounds if it gets approved by the FDA. I'll take that. How about a company that, I don't know, that brews beer like Constellation Brands. How about oil companies with generous variable dividends as they come down? Oh, how about banks? that just got a big earnings boost today because every time the Fed tightens, they can take your deposits, pay you next to nothing, and then invest them in short-term treasuries risk-free. That's what the leadership it is. That's where the money's going. Sure, one day the fat lady's going to sing in the bank's case. It means loans will start going bad. But these stocks now trade like a huge percentage of the loans will set, will, will sour. And I just don't see that happening. Of course, the Fed has to thread the needle here. They need to spread the wealth of layoffs, make it so they aren't all software or hardware related. But like the recession of 2001, the layoffs are going to be heavily concentrated in tech, in newly created tech, in tech that you may own. The money that's left in these source stocks will be, as I've said over and over again, sources of funds for their survivors, donors to the banks and the drugs. It's why we keep trimming these names from my chapel trust. They're well below the weight of the S&P, and it's still not enough. The bottom line, do not be conned by SPAC men. Don't get your head blown off by software as a sinkhole my new nickname for the entire crowd of cloud-based software data centers that didn't make it to the promised land 20-odd years ago and won't do it again. How about we go to Justin in New York? Justin! Hey, Jim. How's it going? Hey. Um, I would like to first say I'm a huge fan of your show. i uh, been watching for a long time. And my best friend, Ethan Pl is a huge fan as well. Um, awesome. The travel sector has been on a roller coaster, but surprisingly, it's held up relatively well so far in 2022. What are your thoughts on Marriott for the rest of the year going into 2023? Look, I, th- I think it's a great company, but it's not the right time to own it. I mean, for instance, uh, let me give you an example. We had Brian Chesky on last night. Now He happens to be for Airbnb, which argues the, the enemy of Marriott. I thought he told a great story. The stock got crushed. What is going to happen to Marriott? I think you have to wait for that stock to go down again before I touch it. Now, listen, I'm asking you not to be conned by the SPAC man, the cloud stocks, the data stocks, this software as a sinkhole. Oh man, but tonight AMD is struggling of so after earnings, but down from 160 to 60, I mean, where could the chip maker be headed now? I'm checking with the CEO. And retail's been a tough corner of the market, but where do I come down on some apparel stocks? I've actually found some that soon will be by. And APCO announced he's stepping down at the beginning of next year. So I'm seeing where the transition stands with the company's top brass. I need you to stay with Kramer.
4: Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag mad tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com.
3: What funny thing happened to the stock of AMD earlier today. Last night, the chipmaker reported its full third quarter while cutting their full-year forecast and issuing a fairly pessimistic outlook for the fourth quarter. Initially, the stock actually rallied, though. So at one point today, it was up more 7%. It wasn't until the Fed committed to more rate hikes in the afternoon that it finally rolled over and gave back some of those gains. Actually, all of them. Of course, we already knew AMD was having a tough stretch. They got a ton of exposure to the extremely weak PC market. That's down 20%. Oh, that's horrendous. And uh, that certainly offsets any good news from the data center. That's why they already pre-announced the late third quarter sales numbers in early October. It's been difficult owning it for the charitable Trust after a huge gain. Thank heavens we took some off. But, man, when I saw the stock rally on lower guidance initially, it made me wonder, hey, could AMD be nearing its bottom? It is down 60% from its highs. So where is this one headed? Not today, but in the near future. Let's check in with Dr. Lisa Su, AMD's chair and CEO. Ms. Tzu, welcome back to Mad Money. How are you?
6: I'm very well, Jim. How are you? It's great to be here.
3: Oh, I'm so glad you're here. Uh, We've got a new update from you uh, that I know included the pre-announcement, but you also gave us a fourth quarter outlook. And I felt that I could describe it as not as bad as feared. Can you give me (laughs) what makes up Uh, You're uh, just because of what you're seeing now and what you saw in the last month. That gives you the confidence to not say that things are going to continue to get worse.
6: Yeah, absolutely, Jim. Well, look, you know, if I just give you the overall, you know, outlook, I would say, you know, we're all working through the macroeconomic situation, and I think you're seeing that in a number of sectors. You know, what we have is that we have a very diversified business, so uh, we do have, you know, sort of a challenging uh, backdrop in the PC market, and that affected us in the third quarter and will affect us here in the fourth quarter as well. But we also have um, our data center business, which is actually uh, proving to be um, relatively resilient, and we have our embedded business that has um, actually, you know, some significant positives amongst a broad base of industries. So when you look at all of that together, you know, we believe that uh, we'll be flattish as we go into the fourth quarter. And overall, when you look at, you know, our full portfolio, we feel really good about our strategic markets in, you know, data centers and embedded as we work through some of the the PC uh, market issues.
3: Now, if it weren't for obviously the PC and some issues, Probably some enterprise. This would be a discussion, we would have a discussion of new product launch, which is next week. Please, it did not come up on the call. Tell us what that will be as a differentiator and what it could mean if business stays okay.
6: Yeah, look, we're really excited about our new product portfolio. You know, we've talked about, um, you know, Jim, you know, sort of the data center and how important, uh, you know, performance and power efficiency is as you think about, you know, future data centers. So next week we'll be uh, launching our um, new product called Genoa as we go through our Italian cities. Um, Very, very excited about the product. Um, I think it continues to give us strength um, in cloud data centers as well as in the enterprise. And what we see here is, you know, we're really extending our lead as it really relates to not just performance, but also you know the importance of power efficiency, especially today when energy prices are going up all over the world.
3: We know Microsoft referenced that in its own call. Now, uh, something that, again, I'm trying to focus on some things that were not just the doom and gloom. I'll let the analysts cover that. Uh, nine months now for Xilinx. You talk about embedded. I think a lot of our viewers are saying, wait a second, the She bought this company Xilinx, it had diversified aerospace, it has defense, it has telco. It has so many different ways to be able to differentiate yourself away from just PCs that tell us the advantages that you've seen since you've merged with Xilinx.
6: Yeah, we're very, very happy with um, how the uh, entire uh, integration has gone. So, uh, you know, we closed the Xilinx acquisition in February. So it's now been, you know, eight months or so. I would say things have gone very well. Our acquisition thesis has played out exactly as we had hoped for. Um, In in the embedded markets, it's a broad-based set of customers. So when you look at it, um, things like aerospace and defense, uh, things like communications, both wired and wireless, um, automotive, these are markets that previously... Um, AMD didn't have much exposure to. And with the Xilinx portfolio, we've been able to actually help um, accelerate the growth in that business um, when you look at the supply chain and just all the demand uh, for those products. So um, it's worked out um, very well. I'm actually even more excited about what we'll see in the future as we integrate some of our products uh, together but with the, um, you know, sort of the AMD processor IP with some of the the Xilinx, um, you know, uh, AI and other acceleration IP. Uh, We think it's going to be a fantastic portfolio and our customers are very excited about what we can do together.
3: All right, that's great. Uh, I wanted to ask you about the Chips Act. I know when we speak about the Chips Act, a lot of it was designed because we want to bring manufacturing onshore. Uh, I'm not sure you've spoken to Secretary Raimondo, but what is your reflection on what can occur and what it means for AMD?
6: Well, I have to say, uh, you know, I think uh, Secretary Raimondo has been um, a great champion of the importance of uh, semiconductors for, you know, the U.S., not just national security, but also for, you know, overall, you know, our economic uh, prosperity. So I think the CHIPS Act is a great thing for the semiconductor industry. I think having more manufacturing diversity in the United States is a good thing. And we view that, you know, sort of across the spectrum. You know, the other part that um, I'm also quite excited about is, you know, the investments in our long-term research and development. You know, Jim, the thing about semiconductors is, you know, we have to invest way, way ahead of the curve to ensure that we have the next generation of innovation. And um, I think the Chips Act, together with all of what we're doing in research and development overall, um, will allow us to continue to lead in these, um, you know, these key technologies.
3: Would you be able to bring some manufacturing from, say, Taiwan, where uh, there has been, I'd say, perhaps a a disconcerting uh, Confluence of events that would make it so that Taiwan may not be as stable as we'd like.
6: Well, we certainly believe that uh, building in the U.S. Um, is helpful, and, and we see that across our supply chain. So, you know, one of the things uh, with the um, investments with the Chips Act, you know, we see, um, for example, a Taiwan Semiconductor uh, building in Arizona, their next generation uh, manufacturing facility. And AMD will definitely be part of that um, overall equation. And it's all about, you know, diversifying our supply chain, which is, you know, good for everybody.
3: All right. Uh, and last question. Hmm. There are a lot of people who are very glib about uh, what they do with their stock and with investors money. That was not you. You called me. You were very upfront. I know you were disappointed. Where are you uh, in your thinking about about being a steward? Because I know that that's the opposite way that Lisa uh, would like to have the company be.
6: Well, I would say, Jim, you know, we are always striving, um, you know, to meet and exceed our commitments. That's, you know, really the way we think about everything, whether we're talking about the product portfolio or we're talking about our um, overall commitments. I will say, you know, the macroeconomics is not something that any of us can control. But I would say navigating through um, sort of a tough macro environment, um, you know, is really our job. Um, I feel great about our product por- portfolio. I feel great about our investments. And I think this is an opportunity for us to differentiate ourselves in terms of, you know, the things that really matter are executing for our customers and making sure that, you know, we deliver on our commitments and, you know, the product portfolios, the customer platforms, and of course, the shareholder returns are all part of, you know, sort of our checklist for ensuring that, uh, that we get right. Well,
3: Lisa, I'm so glad you came on and uh, gave us straight stuff as always. And uh, best of luck this next quarter.
6: Fantastic. Thank you, Jim.
3: Thank you. That's Lisa Su, chair, president, and CEO of AMD. Get money right.
4: Coming up, jump higher, run faster, and make more money? Tie a double knot and hear Kramer's take on footwear next.
2: You seek the key.
3: For a half a year now, most of retail has been a complete wasteland. Especially footwear and apparel. And for good reason. These are groups you traditionally want to avoid going into a recession. And everybody on Wall Street knows that. Plus, we've seen a massive shift in consumer spending priorities. Post-COVID, with money flowing to experiences like travel. People aren't buying material goods. Now, not many chains saw this coming. So we got massive inventory gluts across retail. These companies got burned by supply chain malfunctions during the pandemic. So they often double ordered this year. That you know, means they got more in than they needed. And that happens right as consumers decide to cut back, causing them to get stuck with way too much merchandise. And there's nothing worse than an inventory glut in retail, because then you've got to slash prices in order to move the stuff out of your stores before you can bring in new, fresh product. So, it makes sense that the footwear and apparel stocks have become totally toxic. But I'm wondering if there might be some opportunities here now that they've come down dramatically from their highs. I mean, really down. Now, don't forget, an earnings season unfolded. You know, it's, it's really difficult. So, we've been told repeatedly by the banks and the payment companies that the consumer's still in solid shape. In fact, we just got a pretty strong GDP print for the third quarter. Now, I'm sure the Fed's on the warpath. The Fed's telling you how liquid, how, how strong the consumer is. And it's beginning to bruise a lot of retail, but it hasn't wrecked all of it. And I've got to tell you, when you listen to the Fed, what they're really saying is everybody's still spending too much. Everybody's doing too well. And that's not what a narrative that is really conducive to buying retail stocks. Meanwhile, commodity costs, shipping costs, they've started to come down. In some cases, way down. That relieves the margin pressure of many of these companies were facing. So perhaps there's some things at in what we call a delta there's a change that might make us interested. Most importantly, we have heard some positive things from select apparel players, not most, but select, such as Lululemon or Columbia Sportswear. They're doing great, and we can only ignore the good news so much, especially as we head into the holiday gift-giving season. Now, I'm definitely not ready to sound the all clear for footwear and apparel here, uh-uh, but I do think you can find some select winners as this market repeals some of its gains, but only from overbought levels. So remember, once again, I'm telling you, we have got to wait till stocks come down. But after they come down, remember, the oscillators are plus six, way too high. You know how much we swear by that. After we come down, I'm going to give you the ones that I think you should put some money in. Why don't we start with the most obvious, and that's Lululemon. Well, Lululemon's stock got obliterated in the first five months of the year. It's rebounded. It's nearly 65 bucks from its May lows. Now, this one got hit hard late this year. Because it's widely viewed as exactly the kind of richly valued growth stock you're supposed to be selling when the Fed starts tightening. It didn't help that Lulu had a bad holiday quarter last year thanks to supply chain problems, which led to negative pre-announcements, guidance cuts, and the like, and a hideous decline in the stock, of course. In the last six months, though, Lulu has turned in a couple of truly excellent quarters. We have to change our mind here. It's been raising its full year forecast twice in a row. In late March, they were uh, talking about making $9.15 to $9.35 per share this year. But by September, they'd taken the earnings forecast to $9.75 to 99, should be $9.90. Sure, it doesn't feel like a company is being crushed by a skittish consumer or an overbearing Fed, does it? Plus, the September quarter was a thing of beauty. 29% revenue growth, same-store sales up, standing 23%, massively higher than expected earnings. Even better, Lulu said the trends were better across ch- all channels, categories, and which is, that's precisely what you want to hear. They're even st- uh, selling belt bags uh, like crazy. You might know these things actually as fanny packs. How strong does your brand have to be to make the fanny pack cool again? Well, Lulu stock still trades at a premium, and we don't like that. 28 times next year's earnings estimates I'm more than happy to pay up for it as it comes down. The company's got an incredible long-term growth story. It's doing great right now, and the stock's down nearly 170 bucks from its peak a year ago. That matters. So, again, not here. If someone says, Kramer told me to buy Lululemon this evening, that's a different Kramer. Now, next up is Columbia Sportswear. Now I am glad that I can recommend this one again. After the stock spent more than a year and a half lost in the wilderness, Columbia Sports were peaked at April of 2021, then ran into a series of obstacles, supply chain problems, headwinds from China, strong dollar, usual litany. Eventually, they had to cut their full year forecast when they reported their second quarter numbers in July. At the time, management told us that they were simply being conservative going into an uncertain economy. But the stock did get obliterated no matter what. Now, but last Thursday. You remember when we had them on? Columbia reported again, delivered a magnificent quarter. Uh, 19% sales growth, 13% earnings speed off $1.67 basis, stock jumped 5% response. When you drill down, the Columbia brand, the largest by far, is on fire. It's up 19%. Uh, They're also seeing a ton of footwear sales from Sorrel. Hey, the important thing about this one is that Columbia Sportswear is an outdoorsy retailer. We know the consumer wants experiences, not stuff. But sometimes you need to buy stuff in order to go experience things. Best of all, Columbia Sportswear is now incredibly cheap. And I'll tell you, I followed this company for years. This is very, very rare. It's at 13 times next year's earnings estimates. As someone who knows this company, I started recommending it in the 20s a decade ago and stuck with it as it ran to 115 last year. Trust me when I say the stock at $72 is downright interesting. And it would, again, the market's in a downtrend. Maybe when we get oversold, it's at 65. Wouldn't that be terrific? Get it 12 times earnings. In the same vein last Thursday, this is a new one for me. We also got a fantastic quarter from Decker's Outdoor. You know, that's uh, uh, I haven't recommended this one since 2014. This was a huge COVID winter that got crushed last fall. By the time the stock bottomed in May, it had lost more than half of its value. Since then, though, no, Decker's has started rebounding. Now, when they beat the numbers last week, the stock actually got hit down 4 percent because management didn't raise their four year forecast. When you beat numbers, you're supposed to raise your forecast or else people get nervous. But when you drill down, I really like these results. The core Ug brands doing just fine, up 6 percent. But the real star is something I always thought would have taken off. I thought I was going I got a pair of these six years ago. I thought they were going to take off. the called HOKA, H-O-K-A. Uh, that's the athletic shoes they have up and standing 58 percent. Finally caught fire. At this point, it won't take too long for Hoka to become their biggest brand. It's one of the best-kept secrets in footwear right now. But don't expect it to stay secret for long. Bank of America just reinstated coverage on Decker's with a buy rating, pointing out that they can use cash from uh, for Hoka. Right now, Decker's trades at 16 times next year's earnings estimates, despite having a 19% growth rate. Your P.E. should be higher than your growth rate or even with it. I think it deserves a lot more attention. Finally, the success of Hoka has us wondering about a company that we dismissed because it was way too expensive. Called On Holdings, O-N, the Swiss sneaker company uh, behind on-brand running shoes, which came public in September of last year, right before all the recent IPOs started collapsing. You know, I don't like those IPOs. Now, I've warned you away from them, OK? Uh, and that's been correct. This one's down 70% from its highs this November. But now I'm wondering if On Holdings has gotten too punished. I think it's enticing, OK, uh, even if it's not cheap uh, yet by traditional metrics. Why? Because I'm starting to see these shoes everywhere, including my own feet. Everybody loves them. My wife loves them. And look, when you do the homework, Owens' last two quarters were actually excellent. Excellent. They are growing at 67% cliff. And unlike most recent IPOs, they're actually profitable. Let me put it this way. On's expected to earn $0.38 cents next year. And I think that number's way too low. At the beginning of this year, they were expected to make just $0.03 cents this year. Now it's looking more like $0.33. Cents. I wouldn't be surprised if that story repeats itself on reports in a couple of weeks. Maybe that'll be the moment the stock can redefine itself as something more than an IPO from 2021. And I told you again, and I'm going to reiterate, I do not like that vintage. Bottom line, I'm still bearish on apparel and footwear in general. But if you're selective, some of these are definitely worth owning. And I'm putting that, the Lululemon, Columbia Sportswear, Deckers, and on holdings in that camp. Now, again, I'm going to emphasize, this market is overbought. And as we tell investment club members every day at our 1020 meeting, you don't buy an overbought market. You sell into it. But maybe these stocks get pretty darn good by the time we get oversold. Don't buy them yet. Your time will come. George in Massachusetts. George. Well, hello, Jim Cramer. George, I what's up? You. I want to salute you and Mad Money for being the Best hour of television on the planet. You're very kind. Liz, I wish I could just nail it right for everybody. I'm very, very upset that the market's so overbought, and I can't recommend a lot of stocks. But let's go to work. What's happening?
1: Well, let's see if we can recommend this one. So
3: the stock I'd like your thoughts on has steadily increased in value since its lows in May. It has a price-to-earnings ratio less than 10. But beyond that, Jim, I remain pleasantly surprised at how well this stock has managed – and perform compared to others in the retail sector. So, Jim, can this stock continue its earning ways going forward, or should I take the money and run with Dick's Sporting Goods? I've been a supporter of Dick's Sporting Goods ever since Gary Boulder, the, the former analyst, Credit Suisse, uh, recommended to me. It was in the 30s. Uh, this Lauren White is a terrific CEO. I think you've got a winner, and I would buy some here. And then as it goes down, because remember, we're in a very overbought situation, it'll get more interesting. Now, I am still bearish on apparel and footwear in general. Don't change me on that one. That's how I feel. But if you're selective, as stocks go down, consider these. Lululemon, Columbia Sportswear, Deckers, or on holdings. Be diversified just by one, only down, not up. Much more made money. It pretty much this is with AEP. Now, there's one I've liked the whole time. It could have electrified your portfolio. I don't know. Let's talk to the CEO ahead of his retirement beginning next year. Then, there's something a little weird about this rate hike cycle. I'll reveal what it is and how it could impact your investing strategy. And of course, all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. of the year, investors loved hiding in the utilities. It's a nice, consistent business, makes you good money, even when the Fed lowers the boom on us, as we know they're doing. In the last couple of months, though, th- these stocks have been slammed. Rapidly rising interest rates made their dividends less attractive. That's reasonable, right? The two years give me a four and a half. Wall Street started betting that the Fed would chill out with the rate hikes, though. Uh, I don't know, after today's non-chill Fed meeting, it might be time to circle back to our favorite utilities, things like American Electric Power, the Columbus, Ohio electricity provider that does its numbers in good times and bad, while the stock's roughly flat for the year, trouncing the averages still down more than 16% from its highs back in September. Maybe it's a nice entry point. Now, last month, AEP held an analyst day where they raised earnings guidance for this year and rolled out a new bullish forecast for next year as well. So let's take a closer look with Nick Akins. He's the chairman and now outgoing CEO of America Electric Power to learn more. Mr. Akins, welcome back to Mad Money.
1: Hi, uh, Jim. Great to be with you again.
3: Oh, thank you, Nick. you know that you will be missed because you have been a great <laughs> spokesperson for a great company. And one of the things thank that you. you did when you came in back in 2011, and I remember this because you came on, uh, less than 5% of your, gener- of your portfolio was what I think we would consider clean, uh, clean energy. And now it's yeah. 23%, which is a very big jump in a very short period of time. What do you see happening in the future with your successor?
1: I think that's going to continue to accelerate. There's no question we're moving to a clean energy economy, and we actually adjusted our targets uh, to be net zero by 2045 instead of 2050. And also, we continue to make advances with uh, clean energy. We have over 16,000 megawatts of renewables that we're putting in place uh, in the next in the next 10 years. So all of that's part of a huge capital plan, $40 billion over the next five years it includes transmission and infrastructure and renewables, moving to that clean energy economy. So that process will continue.
3: Nick, how much of it uh, has been on the part of the customers themselves? I feel like the majority of it has actually been on you.
1: Yeah. So the, you know, the, from the customer side, it's actually a benefit because as we retire some of the some of the. Uh, uh, central station generation facilities and put renewables in place. Renewables provide two, uh, two opportunities for us. One is to lower the overall cost of energy because of, of fuel costs. The other is a hedge against higher natural gas prices and so forth. So it really enables us to provide a huge benefit to customers through these projects. And that's why this process continues. So as long as we keep the system resilient and stable, Uh, to be able to serve customers' needs when they need electricity, at the same time, move these clean energy resources into play, it's all going to work very well for customers.
3: So, Nick, today the Federal Reserve raised rates again, a lot of rate hikes right in a row. And a lot of it seemed to be directed by the idea that, look, it's kind of a runaway train economy with so many jobs being created, much more than people there are to fill them. Uh, At American Logic Power, has there been any diminution of the growth during – say the last 18 months of the of this period no
1: no None. no there hasn't jim matter of fact we're experiencing the highest growth that we've had in decades uh, you're seeing six percent growth on the on the industrial side with new chemical manufacturing and uh, primary metals, and those kind, matter of fact, eight of the ten sectors that we look at have grown, and and they continue to grow because of onshoring and because of our territory has a lot of energy-related uh, impacts to it, and um, we have lower rates to support uh, manufacturing and so forth. So it continues to grow, and then commercial follows that, and residential. Certainly, with the uh, the movement to stay at work from home environments that that continues to bolster our residential as well, so we don 't see that changing actually um, we could we could have some slowdown in twenty three but still positive and then we, then we project it to continue to grow uh, from there so a lot of lot of activity going on in the economy today with our economic development
3: well, obviously we have mixed emotions. we want everybody to have jobs, and we love the fact that you're that 10 years ago, you would never be able to talk like that. At the same time, when I listen to Jay Powell today, I say, oh, darn, I wish it would cool a little bit so he wouldn't have to work so hard at his job. Now, today there was a, uh, a, a company called Cheesecake Factory, and they said something, uh, a nice restaurant chain, said something I haven't heard in America in a long time. They said that the price of power had gotten too high. Now, I, I found that aberrant because I, you have a great transmission business, and from what I know, Your bills didn't jump up in the last few months, did they?
1: Yeah, I think probably the major impact is fuel cost. Uh, For those utilities that are highly dependent upon natural gas, for example, this moved up to $7 an MMBTU. Now it's more around $4 to $5, but it's still higher than what's been in the past. So the fuel cost itself has continued to go up. And, of course, investments continue to be made to rehabilitate and make the grid more resilient. That's occurred. But by and large, it's been primarily fuel costs. So as that continues to temper down a little bit, that's going to be helpful in terms of overall, uh, overall charges to customers, which obviously we want to make sure happens.
3: All right. Last word for your successor. What do you, uh, what do you suggest?
1: Oh, I think uh, Julie Sloat's my successor, uh, and she'll do a wonderful job as CEO. Uh, certainly, she was CFO up until recently, and uh, there's no doubt that we have a foundational plan for this company, and she's going to continue to execute it, and uh, certainly I, I know she'll do extremely well and continue with that consistency and quality of earnings and dividends that our shareholders expect.
3: Well, uh, you have made a lot of people a lot of money, and you changed the face of American Electric Power in a positive way. And we wish you all the best and look forward to speaking to Julie. Great to see you, Nick.
1: Thank, thank you, Jim.
3: OK, that is Nick Aikens, chairman and CEO of AEP. It, it, look, there are more than software companies out there. There are companies like AEP. They make you money, and they're getting cleaner and cleaner. They have money. back at the break. Coming
4: up, Kramer wants to hear from you. Your calls on the thunderous lightning round. Next,
3: it is time it's up for the lightning round questions. The round questions. Round questions. Round questions. Round questions. Round 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 ready? Round questions. Round Round I want to start with Ken in Texas. Ken.
2: Thank you, uh, Emperor of Booyah. I want to thank you Ooh. for making me money and helping me not lose money. My stop- Doing
3: my best, and man. It is-, it is so hard to not lose money right now. What's going on?
2: My stock is Edward Life Science. The pandemic is over. I thought that heart valve techniques would start being used again, and I've heard of it for many years and getting worried.
3: I suggest that you have to buy Johnson Johnson. They bought the better heart valve company when they bought Abimed, and I think Abimed is just better, and Edwards Life Science did not have a good quarter. I want to go now to Michelle in California. Michelle.
6: Booyah, Jimmy Whoa. Thank you
3: Whoa, booyah right back at <laughs> you.
0: Thank you for everything you do for us average folks. Listen, Jim, oh, I'm wondering, you. James, you're welcome,
6: I'm wondering what you're currently thinking about Ferentz with a C. Should I hold it or okay, sell it?
3: Okay, now this is a company that is down so much that I'd like to think that it can't go down much more because it is profitable. It's at 16. But in a, a market like this, it could go to 13, 12. If you can take that level of pain, you can absolutely buy it because it is a good company. How about Doug in my state of Pennsylvania? Doug!
1: Hi, Jim. Hey, Jim, Doug. I was calling to see what your opinion of
4: Taiwan Semiconductor. PSM, all right, I'm not going to recommend Taiwan Semiconductor
3: like... in part because we put the Chips Act in, which basically make it so that long-term, they're not going to have nearly as much pitches as they have now. I think long-term. I don't want to own it.
6: Logan in Missouri. Logan. Booyah, Kramer. Long-time listener. First-time caller. I want to get your first thoughts time, on 1st
3: MTTR. Oh, I man, say, I Okay, by... okay, all right. Now, this is the kind of company that three it's a $3 stock, so you think, well, how much can you lose? I got bad news. The answer is $3. Stocks do stop at zero. That has been the saving grace of a lot of the companies that are losing money. And that, legend, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round.
4: The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up, the Fed tightens, and the consumer brightens. Kramer takes a hard look at America's capricious customers. Next. Tomorrow, kick off the trading day with Squawk on the Street. Live from Post 9 at the NYSE.
3: Is that Malamar's cheese, by the way? It is Malamar's cheese. Yes. Yes. I started off with four boxes right immediately. You and I, I put on four morning, pounds, morning, pounds morning, as a result. And I'm going to try to lay off a little bit, I had even though minutes. they get smaller and smaller. The, well, that's another thing.
4: It all starts at 9 a.m. Eastern.
3: There's something weird about this rate hike cycle we got to talk about. The consumers just not being the consumer. Normally, at this point in a Fed-mandated slowdown, the consumer is supposed to cut back on spending. You'd think people would be trading down to cheaper brands. Hmm. Believe me, I think J-PAL was sure hoping that, is, that was going to be the case, but it isn't. So far, we've heard from company after company this earnings season, and everybody from Mondelez to Procter & Gamble to Clorox, Estee Lauder, they all say that people are still willing to pay full price. That's no easy task because full price tends to include three or four recent price increases to cover higher raw costs and transportation costs. Now, look, I know Estee Lauder and Cork saw their stocks get hit after they reported today, but Lauder's problems were almost all China. Their U.S. business remains strong, and I like that stock here, especially when it comes to their most expensive products, which are selling so well. Again, yeah, at this point in the cycle, the consumer is supposed to shun that stuff, buying generic, buying the knockoffs. Instead, Clark says they've actually seen increased brand loyalty. People want the name brands, not the cheaper store brand plastic bags or bleach or salad dressing. This is astounding. You see the same thing in autos. People have have an incredible willingness to buy the most expensive, most tricked-out trucks and cars. They're even paying through the nose for used cars. While Ford sales did indeed fall 10% last month, their price for electric vehicles sold very well. Normally, they're not supposed to be demand for anything auto-related at this point in the cycle. Uh Uh-uh. Not true. Then there's travel and entertainment. Oh, is this a conundrum? The first clear sections are fully loaded on practically every airplane. By the way, those seats are filled with vacationers, not business people who can put their tickets on an expense account. Business travelers have only just started coming back. They've been zooming. These are extremely full planes, almost nightmarishly full, as anyone who's taken one lately would know. They've got extremely high fares, and little competition. Thanks to a series of anti competitive mergers since the Great Recession. Typically, the airlines would be dying after the Fed had raised their interest rates aggressively. No! American Express, MasterCard, Visa, they've all reported very robust spending, with American Express detailing strong experiential spending. What does it mean? Robust eating and drinking. At the same time, here's two down-and-outers. Disney and Comcast are putting up stunning numbers from their theme park business. I work for Comcast. The parks are so far above plan that they're all out of capacity. Hence my pipe dream for Disney to build a theme park in an empty part of New Mexico between Austin and Denver. Oh, and to be sure, I think that Airbnb's Brian Chesky was being conservative last time on the show when he made some cautious comments about fourth quarter spending. His numbers are accelerating, not decelerating. He's hiring new people because of demand, not hubris. Airbnb's got a fantastic franchise, and Chesky wants to make sure it stays that way. Historically speaking, none of these things should be happening, people. You don't understand how strange this is. It's just not—it's confounding. While it is terrific that people are going out and enjoying themselves, you got to wonder why there isn't more resistance to higher chocolate prices. Why aren't more people flying coach? I think it has to do with the balance sheets of the post-COVID American consumer. The average American still has plenty of free money left over from multiple rounds of government stimulus payments. Meanwhile, jobs are more plentiful than ever. A lot of bills were already paid during COVID— It breeds one thing that the consumer is definitely not supposed to have right now. And that word is confidence. A confident consumer is the enemy of the Fed's attempts to stamp out inflation. Yet that's the state of the average American household, despite still one more triple rate hike from Jay Powell today. And I am beginning to believe that as long as confidence reigns, the fat lady isn't about to sink. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise I'm just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Kramer. See you tomorrow. The news with Jefferson starts now.
2: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery.